with no bad intention, all of the adults around me were trying to fix it. Yeah. Um, and what I needed was to feel it. What I needed was to go through it. Yeah. And I got to go to this incredible place where the adults there and surrounding me said things like, that sounds really hard. Do you want to tell me more about it? Welcome, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. I'm so glad you're here. I think we can all agree that children and grief are two words we wish would never have to go together. We hope for a world in which children didn't have to suffer in any way, let alone experiencing the devastating pain of losing someone they love. Yet we do live in that world, and the challenge we face is that our culture is grief avoidant even when it comes to adult loss, and that invariably impacts the ways we do and mostly don't recognize grief in children. It makes it difficult for us to know how to offer meaningful and age-appropriate support. You know, in a recent talk I gave to school counselors in the Dallas Intermediate School District, I was moved by their care for their young students. I also heard the deep frustration they experience when other individuals in the systems themselves don't recognize the ways children experience and express grief, including things like angry outbursts, forgetfulness, up and down moods, and more. But they also also appreciated the reminder that yes, grief transforms, but it lasts much longer than the few days or weeks were absolved of responsibilities like classroom exams. Whether you're a teacher, counselor, social worker, parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, or show up in some other way as a caregiver of children, this episode is for you. I've invited Brennan Wood to be in conversation with me today. She's executive director of the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon. Their mission is to provide grief support in a safe place where children, teens, young adults, and their families can share their experiences before and after death. Now, Brennan's connection to the place goes back decades. You see, long before she became the executive director, she attended the Dougie Center as a client. Brennan walked through the doors for the first time in 1987 when her mother, Doris, died three days after she turned 12. Brennan leans on her own wisdom and the lessons she's learned from the clinical staff of her organization in our conversation today. She is warm and caring and wise, and you are going to love her. I am so thrilled to be welcoming Brennan Wood to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Y'all have heard me probably talking about this on my socials at Lisa Kefauver MSW or even at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch uh, about the importance of us having a better understanding about the experience of grief in children and in childhood and no better person to have on the show than the executive director of the Dougie Center. Brennan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me here, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, we are going to explore kind of a vast uh, amount of topics today. I, I know we're not going to be able to cover everything we all need to know about grief in children. Um, 
but we're going to dive into some of the questions I've gotten from my listeners and from folks on social media about things that they want to know. But I want to start with you where I start with all of my listeners, and that is helping us really unpack where we developed our early grief beliefs, which is the beliefs we have about what grief should and shouldn't look like, and maybe later in life, figure out how to set down those that aren't so useful. And usually those come from our early childhood. And so for you, when I ask you to reflect on an early loss um, and what were the adults in your life teaching you explicitly or implicitly, I think I've heard you share it's the profound loss in your life of your mother. But t tell me a little bit about what comes to mind and, and in particular, what you were early learning about what grief should or shouldn't look like. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, I mean, the most profound grief experience I've had in my life is um, the death of my mother at the age of 12. She died three days after my 12th birthday. Um, certainly, you know, my father died when I was 36 and that was profoundly impactful, but very different when you're an adult versus a, a 12 year old. And um, my mom and dad, they were um, high school sweethearts. They had never dated anybody else. They uh, married very young. They were never apart. They spent every day together. They owned a business together. And they were very determined to create this kind of magic for their kids that maybe they didn't feel like they had in their childhood because of their adverse childhood experiences. And so they came together and kind of created this bubble for our family, which was amazing and wonderful. And we never, um, there, there wasn't room for discord. You know, everybody was happy all the time and they worked hard to make it happy and fun and joyful and playful. And I could tell you dozens of stories of beautiful things they did for us and our family to just create magic. I say my mom kind of perfected the art of making every day a celebration, which was wonderful. But when she got sick and I was 10, they had no skills <laughs> to navigate that journey and they did not know how to handle it. And so they didn't. And they really pretended like she wasn't sick for as long as they possibly could. I don't remember ever having a conversation with my mom or my dad about her illness. I remember learning about it from my older siblings. Um, I have a brother who's five years older, a sister who's three years older than me. And so when my mom died, they were 17, 15, and I was 12. She ended up being sick for a little less than two years, about 18 months. And um, my, my dad said to me one time that my mom couldn't imagine anything but a happy ending. And I think that that was uh, very accurate of, of who she was as a person yeah. <laughs> and also didn't help us to prepare for a very unhappy ending, yeah. which is life, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so when she died, uh, we just, we didn't have the school, the, the skills, we didn't have the tools to navigate that. Um, and I really struggled and, um, my dad kind of sat us all down and said, I think we did a good job with your childhood. I think we did a good job raising you. And 
I'm still going to be here and you can still live here, but I'm not going to do the whole dad thing anymore. And I was 12. And so I really kind of was left on my own for quite a bit of time until I finally, I threw a little bit of a temper tantrum. And I remember being in the kitchen of uh, my home and saying to my dad, you know, this isn't working. And he kept saying, it's okay. You're going to be okay. And I remember distinctly saying to him, what if I'm not dad, what are you going to do? And he said, I heard about this place called the Dougie Center. I have no idea what they do, but I think they help people like us. And do you want to go there? (laughs) And I said, yes, because I knew I needed more support than what I was getting. You know, my siblings were older and kind of able to just escape the chaos a little bit. My dad was very much searching for, um, the, a person to, to fill that, that space that was left in his life that he hadn't had since he was a kid, you know, um, and he just didn't know how to do it without someone. So, um, so it kind of just left me and I ended up going to the Dougie Center. And, you know, I think what I learned from all of that experience, um, in hindsight, when you're going through it, maybe it's, it's different, but what I, what I know is that, um, that people, particularly adults, want to shield kids from pain and we want to take their pain away. And that actually grief is pain and it's love and it's all sorts of emotions. You know, it's not just sadness. And when we t- try to take that away from kids, we're really taking away their opportunity to be whole humans. <laughs> and um, we're really setting them up for things that are problematic for them, for our families, for our communities in the future. And, um, and you know, with no bad intention, all of the adults around me were trying to fix it. Yeah. Um, and what I needed was to feel it. What I needed was to go through it. And I got to go to this incredible place where the adults there and surrounding me said things like, that sounds really hard. Do you want to tell me more about it? (laughs) You know, um, what, what would you want to say to your mom right now? You know, things that helped me to stay connected to my story that helped me to continue this relationship with my mother because she's the only mom I'm ever going to get. Um, and it was transformative, both what happened before and certainly what happened when I got to go to Dougie Center changed everything for me. Yeah. Brennan, thank you so much for sharing your story, which is uniquely yours and I hear it so often, time and time again, from listeners on the show, for the people I work with in individuals and workshops, and even in just sort of my history as a social worker all these past few decades, um, that, um, you know, our parents often, and again, I want to reiterate what you said, not with any malice at all, actually often with very the best of their own intentions and their own abilities, which are limited because they came from families where they didn't learn how to be with their grief or to be, to model that for you. So I appreciate the way that you were able to have sort of grace and compassion for your dad while also recognizing you were learning some really 
you know, you had this intuition, like there's a way I feel about my grief and it's not matching the way the world, particularly my dad, which when we're young, our parents kind of are our world is saying I can or should feel or be with my grief. So I, yeah, I really appreciate that, that explanation. Yeah. Well, thank you. I will say that I think I've offered my dad more grace in adulthood than I did in childhood. (laughs) I think regardless of whether we're talking about grief or not, I think that's just a truism. I don't know what age your children are. I think maybe teens and young adults, but yeah. Yes. Yes. Same. My daughter was my daughter was seven when I passed away and, and when my husband passed away. And I know that I did not, um, I did not, you know, show up for her in the ways now that I would, if I had it to do all over again. And I don't know that she has, she's just now at 19, almost 20, starting to give me some more grace. And we did it to our parents and, you know, this is the, yes. this yes. is the rite of passage that we all have yes. to go through, yes. right? It's Absolutely. like thinking we know everything and our parents are stupid to like recognizing our parents are human, to having yeah. a lot of grace that they came from their parents, which means they had some stuff happen to them in their family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'm 48 right now and I'm 10 years older than my dad was when my mom <sighs> died. And tw- I'm 12 years older than my mom was when she died. And I think about that often because what I thought they were at 36 and 38 is so very different than what, you know, what I know now to be true. (laughs) Yes. That's a really, that's a really, really important point. So I want to talk a little about a bit about your sort of journey through the Dougie Center and sort of having you explain maybe from each of those points of view what you understood the Dougie Center to be. And then we're going to dive into some of the questions that I've heard from listeners and folks that I've worked with over the years just to really help us start to set a really solid foundation around some of the things that we might want to know or learn and unlearn because I think there's a lot of unlearning. But So you end up at the Dougie Center at 12 as a participant Correct groups. What was your, what were some of your early favorite experiences? You gave us a few things like someone saying, that sounds hard. Would you like to tell me more about it? Which by the way, if you take nothing away from this conversation, nothing else away from this conversation, that's just a perfect way for anybody, by the way, child, adult, grief, any hard thing, anything, any hard thing. Yes. Um, Cause we're going to talk about the problematic ways in which we are fix it culture, you know, writ large. And especially as it translates as parents to children is really problematic yeah. in grief and really yeah. in invalidating. So you got to the Dougie center age 12 and people weren't trying to fix you. They were just trying yes. to hold the space for you. Yeah. And the Dougie center is a, peer support model. So really what what we do at Dougie Center is we bring together people who are having a similar family experience to support one another. Um, And it was really founded on the idea that when kids are going through hard things, that oftentimes kids speak the same language, that they can help one another in a way that adults sometimes just really can't. Um, And So I got to go to this place where all of a sudden I wasn't the only kid in the world that had had a parent die because I truly felt like the only kid in the world (laughs) that had had a parent die. And so, you know, our groups are divided by age and who died and, and often in some cases how they died in order to 
give kids that experience of really connecting deeply with other kids who can say, yeah, me too. That happened to me too. Or, well, when that happened to me, this is how I felt about it. And so I was surrounded by kids who had all had a parent die. And then these caring adult, mostly volunteers, although each Dougie Center group is run by a master's level uh, person in the social service field. So, um, and it's obviously very trained on the Dougie Center model, but I got to just sit with it. Our groups are ongoing. There's no beginning. There's no end as we know, but hopefully the world will continue to learn. Grief is not a five-step process. It's not a six-week journey where you get to check off some boxes and you're done with it, right? It's this ongoing life experience. And I got to Dougie Center and it felt like, you know, just a sigh of relief, like a weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. And I got to go every other week and sit in a room with people who got it in a way that no one for me outside of the walls of Dougie Center did. Um, And I got to sit with it. And I think that one of the things that I think we try to kind of do is is in in fixing it and in our fix it culture um, is, you know, we we try to take it away. And and sometimes it's like, in that you hold on tighter to it because it's like, don't take this pain away from me. Yeah. And when you get to sit with it and process it and experience it, it, it does, um, you know, it shifts, it shifts and it changes. And for me, you know, a window opens and lets in a little bit of light and a little bit of fresh air, just a crack enough to see that this will shift and evolve over time. And because our groups are ongoing, um, you know, kids get to, they join and they get to be in, in group with other kids who are much farther along in that process, right? And they get to sit across the room and see like what it might look like six months from now. Yeah. a year from now, two years from now. And that looks very different. I was talking with a teen in our program one time and she said that when she first joined Ducky Center, the the thing she learned almost immediately was that she may laugh again. Yeah. And right. since her brother's death, there hadn't been any laughter in her home. And she heard the adults laughing together because we provide adult support groups at the same time that kids are in group. And she heard the adults laughing and she saw her peers laughing and she thought, I might laugh again and my family might laugh again. And what a, what a revelation, what a gift, right? To just see that. So for me, just being in that space was so healing. It was so transformative that um, I had the opportunity to share my story, to talk about my mom. Um, with people that wanted to hear about her. And I think, you know, another beautiful gift that the Dougie Center gave me is this idea that I can have, I get to, I get to keep loving my mom. Yes. You know, yeah. I get to continue that relationship with her and that there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think um, as a society, we are desperately trying to fix it in medical ways. Yeah. Um, you know, we're moving more and more toward this medical model of grief. And um, I, what I learned deeply at Dougie Center is that grief is natural. It is normal. It is healthy. There is nothing wrong with you. Now, does it need support? Yes. Does it need community? Absolutely. There are, 
you know, things we need to do for kids to support them through this, you know, time in their life. But, but is there something inherently wrong with anyone who's grieving? No, no. In fact, I think minus the doggy center, which is the exact kind of system we all need sort of globally. I think so much of any any sort of pathology or any difficulties, so much of the challenges that we experience are actually because of the systems and because of the language and because of the ideas, as you were referring to, that um, try to fix people or make them move on. And when that isn't the inherent yeah. natural course that we are, we are sort of intuitively knowing our bodies, our minds, our physiology need and want to navigate and just transform our grief as opposed to pack it up and you know, <laughs> ship it off. Yes. Um, that's where that kind of real struggle and suffering that becomes even, you know, more problematic in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you ended up being, I remember, you know, reading and, and listening to some conversations you've had with others in the past. You were not only invited to speak, meaning that safe space in the group where you got to carry your mother's memory forward and have her your relationship with her continue through the stories that you tell and being able to carry on. But then you were invited to sort of be in kind of speaking situations to talk about the benefit of the Dougie Center. And that kind of sparked uh, uh, sparked something in you that, hey, someday I'm going to end up working in this space. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I really... I really wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about what I was going through and I wanted to talk about how incredible Dougie Center was. Um, and so uh, because of that, they invited me quite often to, to share my story. And um, it was about, I think I was about 14. So I closed from Dougie Center and um, I was asked to speak at a training that Dr. Donna Sherman was doing. And um, Donna is my predecessor at Dougie Center. Um, She was the executive director for 25 years and um, has since stayed on as our senior director of advocacy and training. And she's just really out in the world doing the incredible work of advocating on behalf of grieving children and families, writing, speaking, um, doing expert witness testimony, all of these beautiful, wonderful things. And um, I was, I was sitting on a stage with her and Dr. Alan Wolfelt, who I'm sure you also yeah. are all familiar with. And they were talking to a room of about 200 school counselors and counselors and helping professionals and talking about kids in grief. And I remember just sitting there going, I want to do that. <laughs> I can do this someday. Um, and so I, um, I ended up taking the volunteer training at Dougie Center when I was 16 and I volunteered and worked with kids for three years before I left Portland for about a decade. And I continued to speak on behalf of Dougie Center. And um, ultimately, I decided I needed to kind of go out and experience life outside of Portland for a while. I ended up being gone for 10 years. Um, and then I came back 19 years ago. But um, yes, as a teen, I definitely went out, you know, wanted to talk about Dougie Center and the impact it had on my life. That's amazing. And then you come back starting, I think, as a program assistant and secretary. And as is the case when we work in nonprofits, having a history of doing this too, you end up in every role here, there, and everywhere because that's how nonprofits roll. And then landed the um, 
was asked to step into the role of executive director in 2015. Is that right? Do I have my yes. name? Yeah, you, yeah. You, you've done your research I've well. Done so, research. Yes. <laughs> so you've been in this role now for eight years. I have, I'm curious if there's one or two things that stand out to you in terms of um, shifts that you've seen sort of in the families coming into you or even just the reception of the work of the Dougie Center over these last years. And I wonder in particular, sort of in this post, uh, can we call it post-COVID? It's not really post-COVID, but since right. the, since COVID began, like things, shifts that you're seeing either in the kinds of people who are coming or even just the the understandings of grief that people have as they're coming in. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I moved back to Portland 19 years ago to work at the Dougie Center. They didn't know it yet. But as you're, <laughs> as you're saying, um, we definitely, um, I worked my way through all sorts of titles, nonprofit. And then um, when Donna decided it was time to not be executive director anymore, we did a full national search. And I was very um, excited to be offered the position at the end of that search process. And um, of course, then comes the oh gosh, you know, I've wanted this job since I was 14. What if I, what if I can't do it? Or what if it doesn't work out? Um, but, but wonderfully it has, it has been, um, such an incredible experience. So the things that I've noticed over the last, you know, 20 years, but certainly we can, we can hopefully call it post COVID is I think that, um, that we have come a long way. And I also know there is still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Um, and I do think that COVID has definitely um, opened up a lot more eyes around grief, uh, just just grief existing, right? The grief being being real, right? Like, <laughs> like this is a real thing. Um, yeah. You know, I definitely think that that has has shifted some, um, which is which is wonderful. I, I do worry and believe that we are at a critical kind of point where a lot of the world is really trying to medicalize it. Um, certainly the inclusion of grief in the latest edition of the DSM is, um, you know, a different, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a critical kind of point and a change and a shift. And it's unfortunate, um, in my opinion, that we're going in that direction. I think we really need a more um, holistic and human approach to understanding grief. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but what I will say is that, you know, post COVID, uh, when we returned to in-person support groups, because we were able to offer virtual support groups yeah. during COVID, we had a 400% increase in requests for our orientation, um, which was just, you know, really um, <laughs> a, a huge yeah. increase in requests. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we definitely have seen, probably not just in the last couple of years, but over time, over the last 20 years, is I think um, more and more people are understanding the need to provide support to children. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in when Dougie Center was founded, the nurse who founded Dougie Center, Bev Chapel, she was she was a former nurse who was really interested in the field of um, end of life care. And um, she started Dougie Center and had doctors say to her, kids don't grieve. And um, that certainly, I believe, is shifting. I do think there's still times where there's this um, 
kind of broad statements about kids being resilient and yes. oh, kids can handle it. And and yes, we as humans are resilient, but we're not resilient in a vacuum, right? When we come back, Brennan helps us to understand that the way kids grieve looks different at various phases of their development. Whether the child is pre-verbal or a teenager, the most important thing Dougie Center does, and frankly, we can all do for the kids in our lives, is create a safe container for the kids to express their experience of grief. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, I'm thrilled to share that my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is now available for pre-order on Amazon.com, Bookshop.org, and Barnes & Noble. And while the book will be in your favorite bookstores on June 4th, 2024, if you pre-order it now, it'll be at your door that day instead. This book is the culmination of my personal and professional experiences, alongside the lessons I've learned from clinicians, authors, poets, friends, and of course, guests on this show. In place of rigid instructions and must-do checklists, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch invites reflection, encourages self-compassion, and explores the therapeutic power of humor with, yes, just a bit of profanity. As I hope you feel I've done on this show, my book creates a safe space to be inside the messiness of it all, to discover the full spectrum of grief, and to find the tools that help grievers move forward, not on. Grief is a Sneaky Bitch is a comprehensive guide, serving as both a manual full of insights and skills, but perhaps more importantly, as a thoughtful companion that helps readers feel seen and held. So after the show today, head to your favorite online bookseller and pre-order your copy of my book. If you do, I'd love to thank you. So drop me a note at Lisa Kefauver MSW on Instagram. Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind the scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Just in case you're curious, it's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief is a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. I was going to say, we need the right environment to be resilient. Absolutely. All of us, children, adults, 
Um, yes. And that resiliency can come and look in many forms too. I Absolutely. think the resiliency Absolutely. doesn't have to be like, you know, spokesperson for the work. The resiliency can be like navigating their lives in ways that they find like they're thriving, which may not look in that sort of very public way. You know, you touched something on there that I think would be a great place to start because I hear this a lot from, as I said, listeners from the show write into me all the time over the years, folks that I do work with. And this is always the, I've had the privilege of teaching loss and grief at the School of Social Work at University of Texas at Austin for the past few, many semesters. And Wonderful. one of the favorite and sort of light bulb um, sections that our young students go through is when I walk through sort of what grief looks like in children at different developmental stages. Because as to your point, I think we've collectively put an adult lens on what we think grief looks like. And then when we don't see that in five-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds or 17-year-olds, we're like, oh, they're not grieving. They're fine. Absolutely. So I know <laughs> there's different developmental stages, but what are some key things that you would want listeners to know or to recognize when we're, when we're, when we're actually seeing grief in children and maybe didn't have the language for it because we, we didn't know? Yeah, absolutely. I will just share, just to be super clear, yeah. uh, you know, you you are a professor and a master's of social work, and I am not a clinician. And so I just, you know, want to yeah. always give the disclaimer that I am a, um, a griever and I'm an advocate and I'm, um, you know, a, a person who's running a grief agency, but my colleagues yeah. are the experts. Yeah. And uh, what I've learned from myself and from parenting yeah. a bereaved child yes. and from the work that we do at Ducky Center is that it does look different for kids. And often kids' grief reactions are um, misrepresented or misinterpreted yeah. as behavioral issues. Yes. <laughs> and I think this is a really important place to also share that this can be even more true for kids of color or kids that hold other marginalized identities. Um, and I think it's really important that we start talking about that so that kids who are already um, holding adverse childhood experiences and then are grieving are not punished for their grief reactions um, because that is something that definitely happens and definitely we aren't aware enough about or talking enough about. Yeah. Um, I think something that we expect is for kids' grief to be more consistent yeah. um, in the same way that adult grief can be. And really, kids go in and out of grief in a way that's very different yeah. than adults. Um, it is, uh, they dip in and out of it. And yeah. so we need to be sure to hold the space for both. One of the beautiful things about the Dougie Center model is that the kids come and they know what to expect every time they come. There's an opening circle and a closing circle that really give them opportunities at, in both aspects to, to go deeper into their story. Yeah. Uh, but then in that in-between time, we give kids access to anywhere they would like in our program space, as long as they're with an adult, to express themselves through art, through music, through movement, through, um, you know, big energy, basketball, games, uh, play areas. We have a play hospital room. We have a theater and dress up area because 
oftentimes play is kids language. Yes. And so by giving them that opportunity to express themselves, however works for them, we give kids permission to be kids, but also to grieve. And I think that that's just a beautiful and important thing to remember when thinking about kids and their grief. Yeah. Oh, you touched on so many important things. I just want to sort of highlight or sort of emphasize for our listeners. And I think starting with the very notion that though, and it, all grievers can grieve differently, right? Even as adults, we have different grief styles, et cetera. Yes. But adults do tend to be more consistent grievers. And so when we're talking about whether it's a four-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old, they may be, you know, back to their normal selves. I'm using air quotes for those who can't see me on video one day or one week. And then, you know, crying in their room or just kind of lethargic in their room the next. And so that we have to be, as you said, holding space for the both and of the fluctuation that they experience. And I think the other key thing is that it, we are very verbal creatures. I mean, we all are humans are storytellers, but as adults, we've really used to learn to use our language to process our experiences and for so many kids, language is absolutely not the first, second, third line of communicating their sort of inner experiences. And our emotions are held in our bodies. And I actually think kids are so much better at, if we give them the space to do it, moving their emotions and processing their emotions through, as you said, play or physicality, through our creativity. That's so so important. And it's not necessarily going to be tears. And just like adults, rage and anger is a critical and natural part of grief. And to your point, I think it is really important that we understand that for all of us, but especially for kids, especially for kids um, who are already traditionally marginalized, especially when I'm thinking about in school systems, and then penalized for doing the very thing that is natural, but the system needs to understand that it's a really natural response and create, as you said, the container for resilience instead of being a cage that keeps people, keeps kids in particular stuck. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, um, you know, we hear often from people who are not experiencing grief, they they don't want to like bring it up because they don't, it's like, oh, well, I want to shield them from it, or I don't want them to think about it or be sad if they, um, if they are not thinking about it. And it's like, the reality is, is we're all thinking about it all the time. And even kids who are dipping in and out of it, it's still under, there's still this underlying current of it happening. And so, um, recognizing that even when you don't think they are quote unquote grieving, that absolutely doesn't mean they're not grieving. And it's going to show up in different ways and ways that you may not expect at all. Um, and, you know, I, I was talking to a little boy one time, he's 10 and, or he was 10 when I was talking to him, he's probably yeah. much, much older now. And I was asking him about why he comes to Decky Center and his dad had died in a pretty traumatic accident. And, um, he had, you know, he plays sports and he has friends. And I said, you know, tell me, tell me why, why do you, why do you come here? And he said, oh, I love coming here. And he was very articulate. And he said, you know, when I'm not at Ducky Center and I'm with my friends, I, even though I'm having fun and I'm playing basketball and I'm doing whatever, yeah. there's always this underlying feeling 
that I feel awkward because I don't know which of my friends knew, know my dad or knew he died or knew how he died. And I just always kind of wonder about it. It's like, it's always just there in the back of my mind. And I come to Dougie Center and I get to just play basketball with my friends and they all know they all know my dad died. They all knew, you know, they all know the story and they've all had somebody die too. And I get to just feel normal when I'm here. And I think about that and I think about how important that is to try to help kids in all spaces yeah. to not have to have that underlying feeling of awkwardness or difference. Yeah. And I have, by the way, just a shout out for us adults too. Boy, what do we all love a space where we don't have to be doing that dance that that young boy yes. was talking about, which is which part of my identity do these people know? Am I allowed, like, is it, Am I even allowed to be happy and playing with them if some of them know what happened to my dad? Are they judging me? Do I need to tell them? Do it? There's just so much extra effort that we go through. And I think particularly children go through because for sure, most of them do not have peers in their everyday life who've experienced something like that. Yeah. And that, that having to sort of be, you know, on guard to your own identity and to your own behavior is exhausting. I can absolutely, absolutely that place for them to be play and to be able to play with permission. Because I think one of the things I've, I've recognized as I've um, been around, I mean, this, I felt this way, even with my own daughter, as I said, who was seven when my husband died, but have been around other kids um, who've been experiencing the loss of parents or even siblings is they're craving to play, but then either their own self-judgment or frankly, judgment from parents Yes. around like, why do you, why are you complaining to me about going to McDonald's or Chick-fil-A when your sister just died or when your dad just died? Or, or do you, why do you want to go? Why are you complaining about not being able to go to the basketball game? Um, so like just giving yes. us the space to play, what do we need to know about the like nature of, of children's need to play in and amongst their grieving process? Yeah, it's a huge, huge part of, of children's grief. And it's, it's a huge part of what we do at Ducky Center. And, um, you know, Ducky Center was the first of its kind in the country. Um, and the Ducky Center model is really has been replicated or inspired, you know, um, over 500 programs across the country and around the world. And I believe that a huge part of that and the, the reason that it is so effective is because it really gives kids that opportunity to be in that environment where they can just express themselves in whatever, whatever way they need to. And I think, you know, often as adults, we want them to, we want, we want to do it right for yes. ourselves. We want to do it right for our kids. Yeah. And, um, and really, you know, other than of course, ensuring safety and, you know, yeah. there really isn't this right or wrong way to grieve. And, um, and so, you know, this, this model is, is one that really supports kids through, through play, through activity, through getting it out. And I think that that's, that's critical. And I also think that we can offer those moments um, to kids. We can offer those moments outside of a support group environment if we don't have access to that, right? Yeah. Um, we can offer activity and 
um, ideas. And, you know, even Deggy Center on our social media, on our website, we have hundreds of free downloadable resources and ideas around activities and how to encourage kids to express themselves and to create memories together, to share memories of the person who died. Um, every year we do summer tips of things you can do, blowing bubbles and making wishes and talking. Uh, you know, I think just talking about um, the the story and the grief and the people who, who have died and, and making sure that the kids know that they can carry that with them and they can honor and love that person uh, no matter what. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the sort of person centeredness, you know, as maybe like a, you know, clinically turn there term, but yes, while it, where I think, yes, there are some common themes that we all experience when we're going through loss, you know, sorrow and sadness and grief. And then we have the physical and the emotional and the psychological, even the spiritual impact, right? I mean, grief impacts our domains and, when we can give some container or sort of some structure like you do in the Dougie Center, but then allow the kid or the person to sort of find their own expression of grief at their own rhythm, at their own pace, that's the right way. I mean, if you, need, if you need a right way in air quotes, then that's the right way. It's just creating just enough of a holding space, just enough of a safe container, mm-hmm. adding some resources, and then letting that kid I mean, we're talking in particular here about grief and children find their way in that space. So I, I appreciate that. You know, we touched a little bit on anger. I think another topic that I've heard from so many parents and even grandparents, just adult caregivers of children who've experienced loss is sort of the relationship between loss and anxiety or fear mm-hmm. in children. Again, especially if it was their sort of caregiver in some form or format. How do you all talk about, or how might we as um, aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents, whoever's yeah. listening, what, what do we need to know about how we, in, how we acknowledge fear and anxiety when it comes Absolutely. to Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think just touching back on anger for one quick second yes. to yeah. say that, um, you know, I think that uh, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to punch your little brother. Right. <laughs> and so, so how do we, right. Going back to that idea of activities, how do we give kids options? Yeah. Right. And really say like, okay, you, you really are expressing anger. You can't do this thing. So let's find other outlets for that yeah. together. And I think it is, um, there's, you know, kind of probably an adjacent idea around anxiety and fear. Ducky Center actually has an excellent tip sheet that I would recommend on fear and anxiety in children after a death and how to support that. Um, what I would say is, and I'll just share from my own personal experience. So um, my husband and I adopted our, our, our the third child in our family after the death of both of her parents. The, our two oldest are my wonderful stepchildren, my my husband's kids from his first marriage. And, um, and they're, you know, they, in their in their childhood, they're now getting their young adults and they're off to college, but we're with us half the time. And then we adopted Jordan after the death of both of her biological parents. And um, one thing that has been very true for her in her grief is anxiety. Um, And one of the things that I say to her often is that if she didn't have a reaction in her body to what she had been through, there would be something wrong. Right. Right. 
And that that is what I would worry about is if she didn't have a reaction. I actually understand and, and anxiety is really tough and it's really hard when you're experiencing it. But if you, if you didn't, if your body didn't have a reaction, that's when I would worry, yeah. you know? And I think that that's a important thing to, to understand as a parent, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, again, grief and all of its many components yes. and many assets, anxiety being one of them are a natural, normal, healthy part of loss of any kind. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean you can't do very supportive things to help kids navigate and manage that anxiety, but it isn't in and of itself. It shouldn't be um, seen as like, well, this is a problem. No, it's a, what happened is yeah. the problem. And the kids are experiencing a reaction to their very real life circumstances. Yeah. And so then you can help them. If you're grounded in that and you help your kids be grounded in that, then you can, you can help with what, what those, what the symptoms tools. are they experiencing yeah. what they, with tools exactly yeah. to navigate that. Yeah. Brennan, I think that's so important what you just shared, which, and I think this way about all of the emotions that, it, that we experience when we're experiencing grief, which is, you know, I don't know, a bit much longer list, as you said, than sadness and sorrow. Um, but all of them are really information and they're really actually, I sort of encourage myself and others to sort of hold your hand over your heart when you have a big feeling, particularly a big feeling like anxiety and fear, and sort of say to yourself, Think like, of course, sweetie, you feel this way. Uh, I, I had a meditation mentor who would invite me to talk to myself that way. I just love that caring language. But really, anxiety, as you said, is a normal response to this very scary, hard thing that happened to us. And regardless of the kind of death, a parent, law, a child losing a parent is just a very traumatic or a very, you know, problematic, scary experience. Um, and sort sort of then we as adults, instead of seeing a child's anxiety and fear and saying, stop feeling that way, you shouldn't feel that way, even when we do it, you know, out of love or we get frustrated with somebody's anxiety, I think to level the play, playing field for everybody to say, yes, yeah. I can imagine that you feel that way. This was a very scary, hard thing that happened to you. Mm -hmm. And that's your body's, like, thank your body. That's your body's way of trying to keep you safe and keep you feeling protected because this thing that happened that was out of your control, like full stop. Yes. Sometime later. And <laughs> I can imagine that it feels hard in your body when anxiety is in charge. So let's work together to practice some tools to develop some skills and resources so that you can notice when anxiety is showing up. And you can invite it to sort of take a back seat instead of being in the driver's seat is sort of a metaphor I often use, right? Perfect. Yes, that's yeah. perfect. <laughs> so I appreciate that. And the same, again, same goes for anger, same goes for sadness, same goes for any emotion, especially the emotions that feel like they're going to kind of take us down or wash over us is to yes. recognize their validity. Again, it doesn't mean we get to act out in any old way that we want to act out in the world. Um, and... I think we try to bypass acknowledging its validity and shut it down. We do that sometimes as parents, like stop crying, stop being fearful. You have nothing to worry about. Stop being angry. It's not appropriate. And when we do that shutting down, we kind of 
um, you know, oh, see here, there's a siren that makes the anxiety. Does I know. Anxiety's going- I know. I was just saying I'm I'm in the city and I'm so sorry that I'm no. hearing the siren, but it actually I feel- goes with exactly what you're. Y'all, we did not even put on a soundtrack back there. That was <laughs> real deal. As we come towards the last part of our conversation, Brennan shares some of the don't do's when it comes to supporting grieving children. In particular, she gives some firsthand complaints from teenagers about the ways the adults in their lives are missing out on what they need most. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. You may or may not know that I show up in person and online in many more places besides in your podcast feed each week. In addition to the keynote addresses and workplace trainings I offer, I've had the honor of leading a series of online grief workshops recently with a community of grievers just like you. In fact, the folks that have shown up for the first two workshops were all listeners to the show. If you're looking for an intimate online gathering space to feel seen and heard in your grief, to learn and practice the skills that will make navigating grief just a little bit easier, join me for one or more of my upcoming workshops in the Reimagining Grief Together online series. You can learn more and sign up at the link in the show notes or head to lisakiefover.com today after the show. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. So anyway, so I appreciate that sort of like recognizing like the dismissing is the most harmful thing we can do as parents. And I'm going to link the tip sheet in the show notes for today's episode. And of course, you all should be following the Dougie Center. And uh, if you have uh, grieving children in your life that you're, you're concerned about. So we started to talk about some of the best and worst things we can do. The best things being sort of what your person said to you, which is like, that sounds hard. Do you want to tell me more? We can create and hold space. We can help normalize all of the physiological and emotional, social fears, concerns, worries that kids have. Some of the, the, I hate to be lean on the negative, but some of the, like the don't do's or the cautionary tales that you might want listeners to know (laughs) about, you know, sort of what not to do with their niece, nephew, child, grandchild. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we also have a wonderful tip sheet of about um, it, things to say other than I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> which can be really helpful for folks, I think, because um, especially teens, I hear from teens a lot. Like, if I hear I'm sorry one more time, 
I'm going to explode. So I definitely think there's a lot of things that you can kind of say instead. Um, The other thing that I would say is on kind of um, uh, both sides, like don't, don't minimize this experience for kids. Don't minimize. This is a a life changing experience. I remember the first time I read Hope Edelman's book, Motherless Daughters. And she was talking about in like, I think the foreword um, or very early on in the book, she was talking about how if she were to meet someone for the first time at a coffee shop, she would want to say like her height and her, um, you know, color of her hair and maybe something she'd be wearing and that her mother died when she was 19. Right. It It is such a transformative experience. It becomes a part of who you are. And I think the more we try to encourage people to keep that separate from who they are, yeah. the the more we have these outcomes that aren't favorable to kids, families, our communities as a whole. You know, when you look at kids who've had a parent die in childhood, what we know is that they have significantly levels, a significant significantly higher levels of things that we want to avoid as you know in society anxiety depression you know substance use misuse um into later teenage years and adulthood those things are, are can be higher for kids who've had somebody die in their childhood and so we don't want to minimize the impact of this and we want to create you know safety and support around this experience i also think that Sometimes, you know, adults think that they absolutely know what kids are going through and the best way to deal with it. And, you know, and sometimes we don't, right? And so I think that we need to trust kids much more than we do and be open and honest with kids. You know, one of the things that happens often for kids is especially when it comes to deaths that are more stigmatized in our society, um, that we don't always tell the full truth. And kids know that. They learn that. They learn it from other people. And then what they have learned from that is that you're not trustworthy. And sometimes even depending on the extent of that, that can extrapolate out to other adults, that adults aren't trustworthy. And that's not what we want kids to be learning, right? So being open and honest and telling the truth, maybe even sometimes when um, you don't know the answer saying, I, I don't, don't know, know the answer. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Or, um, you know, if a kid's asking a big picture question about something that's like, Ooh, especially if you're say you're the aunt or you're the teacher or you're the someone who, who maybe doesn't want to inject your own personal philosophy about things into a kid's life. You know, I think a beautiful response is, Hmm, that's a really powerful, important question. What do you think? Exactly. Exactly. You know, just really giving kids that opportunity because, you know, we all, every person who's grieving, who has grieved in their life has stories that they can tell you about people who've said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing. Yeah. And, um, and they're impactful. And we also, also know, I mean, I can tell you stories of when I've said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing. And so- you know, how do we uh, balance that and navigate that? And I think really listening to kids, um, respecting them and believing them, recognizing that kids 
very young kids can tell you what they're thinking and feeling and they can guide us in ways if we're willing to let them listen. Yeah. 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 Oh, you touched on so many really important things there. I think this notion, again, we're talking today about grieving children, but so much of this, I think, applies to those of us, you know, who experience loss in adulthood too, which is to not underestimate and shy away from the fact that part of this person's identity story from now on is intricately linked to this loss, the, you know, Hope Edelman's motherless daughter, right? Or these children who've lost parents, et cetera. However, you know, in whatever format the loss is, I think about that, like, I'm, I'm going to be a widow for the rest of my life. Even if someday I, you know, find somebody and decide even to get married, I'm still in a way, and there's a critical part of me that will always be a widow. So it's not shy away from that in terms of, acknowledging that for the child and also just being on the lookout, as you said, because there are heightened risks for these, when we have these, what are called ACEs, right? Adverse experiences, we're more at risk. And I want to put, throw in one of my ands because everybody knows me for my both (laughs) and. I think that's truly important because I think we tend to shy away from that. We tend to try to think we're helping them by just not talking about that part of their identity. And let a kid also be the theater kid and the football kid and the like also give them the space to not always be quote unquote performing the identity story of their loss. Like let them be a whiny 12 year old. 100%. So like also sort of the both and allow them to be both because the truth is they are both of those things and they're trying to navigate wait, do I still get to be a whiny 12-year-old when I'm also a 12-year-old who's experienced the loss of my mom? And how do I, and just to name and normalize yes. that, right? I think that's a really important thing that you brought up. And Brendan, this other no- notion that you touched on, which I think is so important, which is, um, you know, when we sort of minimize or try to fix or kind of turn away a child when they're experiencing something, or we think we have to have an answer every time we don't tell the whole truth or we don't tell the whole story or we change the subject, right? Or we tell them not to think about that. We're actually disconnecting that child from their own intuition. Yes. And one of the most important things we need in to be resilient human beings is to be really in touch and in trusting relationship with our own intuition. And so to really follow the lead, I think maybe it's the language that you used of the child, again, within safe boundaries, he just doesn't get to hit his brother and or run out and say, <laughs> you know, whatever, like, yes, yes, but really lean into helping a child connect with their own intuition about their feelings about how they may need to express their grief by moving their body or doing something art or whatever. So trusting intuition sounds like as, as part of what you all are creating in the programming that you're doing in the Dougie Center. Yes. Yes. No, all of that was beautifully said. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. You know, one topic that I'd love to touch on a little bit, it's such a huge topic. It could be its own conversation and maybe we'll have one um, in the, in the future, but I'm, I'm curious to know both based on the groups that you all run at Dougie Center or just any insights you have from conversations you've had from the children who come through your program in your tenure about what we need to think about when a child has lost someone because they've died by suicide in particular. Mm-hmm. Is there, are there 
like do's and don'ts or things that come to mind that you think we as listeners need to know again, whether we're the parent, the sibling, the aunt, the uncle, the grandparent, the teacher, something we need to know about that? Yeah, I, um, I actually, I, you know, I think it could be an entire conversation and I'd love actually, uh, you know, at some point, maybe you could have that conversation with uh, my colleague and uh, predecessor, Dr. Donna Sherman, because yeah. she is um, just has such beautiful insights on this. Okay. And, you know, certainly when deaths are more stigmatized, like a suicide death, there are so many things that, you know, these kids go through that is, a, you know, this grief reaction, and it can just be exacerbated by this societal stigma that's happening or the things that people say. At Dougie Center, we have a group um, specific for kids, six to 12 year olds who've had a parent die of suicide, a parent or a sibling die of suicide, and a teen group specific for kids um, who've had a, teens who've had a parent or a sibling die of suicide because just because of exactly what you're kind of bringing up. And unfortunately, you know, suicide is, is a very real issue. I think for kids in our program, I, I want to say it's something like 12 to 15% of our kids, okay. maybe even, maybe even a little higher have had a suicide death. And, um, you know, there's so many questions that kids are grappling with in those situations. And I think really talking with kids about, it being open, being honest, being transparent. We also have a beautiful video called Understanding Suicide Supporting Children um, that's available on through our website. Um, and, you know, I think that it is um, something that you need to be open and honest about as hard as that is, because again, oftentimes kids will hear that from others. We had a kid in our program who came in and on his first day, we didn't know um, the, the, we always try to get, you know, make sure that families know to tell their kids the truth. And we always try to encourage that before they come to Dougie Center and this family, we thought that had happened and it hadn't happened. And, um, the dad died of suicide and the nine-year-old boy came into the group. And when he had the opportunity to share his story, he said, my dad killed himself, but don't tell my mom. She thinks it was an accident. Oh. And I mean, yes, my yes. heart. Oh my God. Kids know what a burden. First of all, they know, but also like what we think we're protecting that child, but now that child feels burdened to care, you know, to protect their mother. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, we've had, I've heard from kids that say like, you know, there's this grief that we're going to have regardless. And then there's this extra layer because of, of it being this. And what we have talked about in the past is, you know, just that, um, you know, that kids are essentially like, they need to understand more about why this happens. And I think, again, there's a lot of um, really important resources on Dougie Center's website. There's yeah. a lot of important conversation to be had around this. And I think it's important to remember that when people die of suicide, that they are, um, they are looking to escape pain. <laughs> and often folks who have suicidal ideation will share that they firmly are in this belief that they are doing the right thing for yeah. their kids and families. So when we say, 
oh, it's such a selfish act or it's this or that. It's really not understanding the deep pain and deep experience that that person is having. And it doesn't help to support the the people left behind if that's the narrative that we're sharing with them. So uh, again, there's a lot more to say on this subject. Yeah. And I would just encourage folks who, who want to support children who've had a suicide death in their family to really learn more about that because there, um, there are, as you said, particular um, nuances around deaths. You know, we're also finding just as an aside that kids who've had someone die of COVID are yeah. also experiencing a lot of stigma and a lot of questions, a lot of shame. Well, were they, you know, asking about vaccination yeah. status, asking about underlying health conditions, you know, all of these things. Um, that, you know, because COVID has unfortunately been just, you know, something that has become politicized. Um, politicized yes. Yeah. Thank you for that word. Um, that, you know, that, that that's happening as well. Yeah. Certainly we're seeing a huge increase in suicide misuse and, and, and deaths. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, substance misuse yes. yeah. and, um, and accidental, from, yeah. accidental deaths from substance misuse. And, and that's also deaths that are very stigmatized. So, you know, we just want to really be careful in how we approach those subjects with kids, but also be very honest, be very open, answer questions. Um, you know, I think that's one thing that's so important is, you know, just answer questions openly and honestly. And again, going back to that, even if it's, I don't know, yeah. but really just that baseline of the that kids know they can trust you so they can yeah. come to you and talk to you when they have really big questions about really big things. Yeah. Oh, so important. And I'm glad that you sort of broadened this to sort of other sort of stigmatized losses. And part of what you were getting at there really is every time it's already hard enough to sort of feel seen and held in our grief as we walk in this, you know, what I sort of term our grief illiterate world. And it's particularly hard to claim our own grief when people are pushing back at even our right to be grieving or like the right around the kind of loss. Did they have a vaccination? Did they do the thing? What, you know, didn't they go to get mental health treatment and whatever? Right. And so let's, if we can, I mean, I would love for us to stop doing that for everybody, but for the love of Pete, can we at least please stop doing that to children? That's not the yes. business. They are experiencing loss. It really doesn't matter, nor is it their business to have to defend or explain how it is that that loss came to happen. So I think sort of re by being curious, by being honest, by sharing what you know, even saying when you don't know, and actually getting to the root of persons, that sounds hard do you want to tell me more? I'm just going to keep coming back to that. Yes. Point. We're just ridding all of the BS, you know, that gets layered on and we're really starting to come back to that kid and to 100%. and kids are curious. I mean, I think we all need to like take a page from kids, right? They're curious <laughs> yes, and they are going to ask questions. And I would just say, you know, you may decide as the aunt or the teacher or even the parent that Oh, is this age appropriate? And of course, there's guidance. I know Dougie Center has a lot of great information and resources. I think another tip that I would just add, in addition to just validating their curiosity, sort of like, yeah, that sounds like a really important question. You know, it also buys you a little time to think about what you want to give <laughs> for the answer. Yeah. And, but, and also, like, I wonder what you want to know or what are your thoughts on that? 
Like also pausing and giving some space because you may go be launching into some technical answer and they just wanted to know, like, is that going to keep me from going to Susie's house? (laughs) Exactly. And then you're like, wah, wah, guess I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ten minutes later, they're like, "Really? I just wanted I just to know wanted if to I know could go play I, with my yeah, friend." Yeah. yeah. But I think yeah. validating, like, starting off with the assumption that their grief experience and that their questions and their curiosity is valid, even if you don't have an answer, and then being curious about what it is they are looking to know, and then giving yourself the grace and patience to say, "I don't say I don't have the right language for that now, but that sounds like a really important question." Can we come back to that? Or maybe we can talk about that in family therapy or with, you know, when grandma comes to visit or whatever the scenario is, right? To absolutely patience, but to not dismiss. It sounds like it's kind of the underlying yes there. Don't yes. dismiss. Yeah. What the kid. Absolutely. Is. Yeah. Absolutely. Brennan, I don't know how an hour flew by, but it <laughs> did. And this is definitely going to not be the last conversation. And maybe I will take you up on having a conversation with Dr. Sherman, because I do know um, death by suicide and other disenfranchised um, losses are on the rise and are particularly um, difficult, I think, for us to support um, the children in our lives. So yes, I, I appreciate you so much for doing what you've done with your life, sort of transforming your own losses and then showing up in the world um, to serve other people and to be of service to other people. And thank you so much for answering my questions, the listeners' questions today, just being in conversation about this really important topic about children's grief. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity and for the important work you're doing as well. I really appreciate it. Friends, thanks so much for joining me and Brennan for this conversation on children and grief. If you're a parent, aunt, uncle, grandparent, teacher, or offer some other form of care for a grieving child, I hope you're walking away with some new insights on how to show up for them in a more meaningful way. A compassionate reminder to you if you heard something in the don't do list that you've actually done. It's okay. We all have. Remember, we live in a grief illiterate culture. How could you have known? You did the best you could with what you knew. Now's your chance to practice these skills. Speaking of skills, if you're interested in learning more about how to show up and care for your own grief, join me and fellow grievers in January 2024 for an intimate one and a half hour online workshop. We'll explore cultivating the skills and practices needed to be with our grief in a compassionate and caring way. Thank you for listening for today's show. If you found it helpful, don't forget to share the episode with others who might need it too. If you do it on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. And of course, if you loved it, leave a five-star rating and write a review wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Gile Smith of Alafia Sound for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.